Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Marketing Blender Show. I'm Dacia. And I'm Daisy. Now, today we are talking about the top statistics for marketing and sales that you need to know for 2024, especially to help you plan. So I am such a nerd about statistics. Like, I literally had to cut myself off prepping for this show because I was just down the rabbit hole because while I love ideas, I love ideas supported by data even more. So um, this is going to be fun. Now, real quick, you guys, we literally are going to go ahead and share that rabbit hole with you in a long, long blog post. And so make sure to click that link if you're curious, and we'll have actionable takeaways around some of the aggregated stats that we pulled for you. So there's a much deeper dive behind this if you're curious, but Daisy, you and I pulled some of our favorites, um, and we're just kind of going to jam on those and share with people our honest responses to them and you know and our personal takeaways about how do you how does that impact how we move forward into 2024 and of course we're going to talk about statistics that we see as being valid the ones where they maybe that's not what people think they are so stay tuned we're going to be going into some fun details i'd like to start with some of the really top level stuff so for 2024 what do the trends and statistics say people should be spending if they're a B2B organization in terms of marketing? Okay, and no surprise, about 10% of revenue should be directed toward marketing. In other words, keeping what you got and getting more because that's what marketing is about. Every year, every time. Now, pandemic and post-pandemic, we saw it spike closer to 12 to 14%, which is really not surprising because sales spend had to go down since there was less trade show, less in person. So people moved that to a different place on their P&L. But time and time again, if you're confused about how much to budget for marketing, 10%. 10%. 10% the growth standard. And the follow-up on that statistic, about 50-50 split between digital and traditional. Now, this is going to depend on where your target market is, but I would love to see more B2B organizations directing more money toward digital because we still see so many companies that are like, we're going to spend 80% of it on the trade shows where it costs $20,000 to get a lead and not spend on digital marketing. <laughs> you stole the words right out of my mouth because I could not agree more. I mean, we have so many clients flip out when they hear, what? We have to spend $2,000 in Google AdWords a month. And I'm thinking that is a bargain. And do you know the kind of ROI, systematic ROI, if done well, that you can get from that versus, you're right, a $20,000 per lead cost just because you're comfortable being in person at trade shows. So I'm not saying kill everything um, in exchange for digital, but man, like stop being so scared of it because we do see too much underinvestment in digital. And you know, you've got to invest in having a really talented doer. And then you have to make sure that that doer can be honest with you about what it takes to actually compete and win in digital marketing. And it needs to be enough. Very true. So what's your favorite statistic that you found? Okay, real quick. You said non-digital. So should we go ahead and define people, like define for people how you, like what you view as non-digital? We already mentioned trade shows, but what are some of the other things that are um, not, you know, not digital? Traditional, marketing? not digital. So you really just have to think about anywhere that you're 
prospective buyers are that's not online. So that means in-person events. That can be user groups. It can be seminars. It can be conferences. It can be your print collateral that you create. It can be signage outside your building. Anything that's not online is your traditional marketing. Call centers, like all sorts of stuff. Good and bad. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> digital call centers, it's all VoIP now. So it's technically, <laughs> technically digital, especially if you've got some AI in there listening in and yeah. doing customer sentiment on your calls. Yes. Oh my God. Exactly. Cyborg age has arrived. That is not a guess and it is not over traumatization. That is real. Okay. So the ones I want to dive into, I decided to take a little bit of a sales route because so many B2B organizations are sales-driven organizations. And so was the impact there when you're thinking total business development? So one of the ones that I came across, 92% of sales pros give up after the fourth call, but 80% of decision makers will say no, typically four times before saying yes. So the parallel to this is so ironic, but it's so important to understand how much sales has changed. And going into 2024, if your organization has not changed sales strategies, there's no more dialing for dollars. And you know, you've got to think differently about sales and its effectiveness. And I know there are a lot of stats around just marketing touches, and it doesn't have to all be on sales all the time. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and I think that's the thing for me is that so many sales organizations don't realize marketing can and should supplement sales follow-up. If somebody is ghosting you, you can write an automated sequence that the salesperson manually turns on to ensure that they get past four. You can have pre-written emails that completely change the efficiency of a salesperson and they were written by a marketer, so they're probably going to incorporate more of the assets and tools and value orientation that has substance that a salesperson can share in order to get people interested. And they don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can use technology to help this. You can use sales training, of course. You can pre-write sales scripts. I mean, there's so many things where marketing and sales alignment can, number one, help power an individual past, number four, that fourth call, and number two, can actually drive so much interest and curiosity for the buyer that they start being like, all right, I'm paying attention. I kind of think I like what these folks are saying. That is the magic of making sure that there's sales and marketing alignment and doing it intentionally and predictively, not as a reaction to a live sales opportunity. This ad is brought to you by The Marketing Blender. As you guys know, I'm a fractional CMO, and actually at The Marketing Blender, there's a whole team of us. For a fraction of the cost of a full-time executive, you can hire a chief marketing officer to write your marketing plan, to clean up your messaging and your positioning, and to drive sustainable results. We oversee multiple partners. We help mentor team members. And most importantly, we build a marketing machine that will drive results for your company for years to come. If you're curious about what this looks like, and some of our engagements go from a couple months to a couple years, check out themarketingblender.com. I'm going to get on my hobby horse for just a moment about marketing, doing sales enablement. Marketing should absolutely be helping to enable sales only in repeatable ways. 
only in one to many ways. So sales treating marketing as their personal admins. Oh, make me this thing for this meeting I'm having. Oh, can you put together a deck for me? Can you make a flyer for me? No, but if it's, can you help me restart 30 late stage deals by creating an email sequence? Yes, because that's reusable, it's repeatable, it's scalable, it's one to many, which is what marketing should be about. Preach, <laughs> preach. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna try to stay on topic. I have so much to say about that. But I will keep it at amen, sister. Oh my goodness, I love that one. Now, one other thing that I wanted to add to this is about return on investment. And I want to be clear, you guys, that we are not bagging on salespeople. They're important. But let's talk about their highest and best use. It's closing the deal. It's being in real time reactionary to a human being and serving them well to make sure that that prospective client progresses towards their goal, which is solving their problem and choosing your company to do so. So the statistic that I wanted to bring up is that salespeople on average generate one appointment for every 209 cold calls that they make. Uh, not, not good ROI for a highly paid salary, not good ROI, just period. Like you hold that up to marketing statistics. We would be fired all day long if that was the average ROI that we got on marketing tactics. It would. And also you can't outsource that to somebody who doesn't know how to talk to human beings. Right? <laughs> so it's, it's just a tactic that if you're going to use it, you better know exactly what you're doing and understand what, what you can do to increase that ROI. But most of the time, honestly, cold calling is the worst possible way that you could annoy people with your outreach. Yeah, I know. And does anybody answer their phone anymore? I don't. Only if I'm in the mood to mess with somebody. (laughs) Thank you. Only if I'm in the mood to vet somebody's sales process and get new ideas for how not to do things. (laughs) I don't know if that's awesome (laughs) or mean. (laughs) We all have our days. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So that's a segue though. And I think you had mentioned that you have a statistic about marketing jargon alert. Um, account-based marketing, ABM, because there are ways to incorporate healthy and value-driven cold calling, but it can't be on its own little island. So um, ABM statistics? So the statistic I found, and this is what I'm skeptical about, said that 89% of B2B companies do some kind of account-based marketing. No way. I I don't believe that because guess what? (laughs) Building account-based marketing strategies is hard. It's It's not easy. If it was easy, 89% of people would be doing it. They're not. They're doing something that they think is ABM that is not ABM. Just because you have a list of accounts that you wish were your clients. (laughs) Yes. And and when I say list, I don't mean database with decision makers and titles and contact information and preferences and persona profiles. We wish. No, I mean... Oh, I wish Apple was our client. Oh, I wish so-and-so GE was our client. No, that is not account-based marketing just because you wish these huge enterprise companies were part of your portfolio. No, that's not ABM. It is not. So account-based marketing is geared toward large organizations. Often the very first thing that my clients ask me is, how do I figure out who's the decision maker? I mean, that's where they're starting. They're not starting with, oh, we have a full list of everyone who's at that decision-making table. Right. They don't know who they are or how to get to them. That's the first hurdle. And that's why I know that 90% of 
B2B companies are not doing account-based marketing because they don't have that information. And guess what? Paying Zoom info $40,000 is not going to give you that information either. No, so, not that is name not drop, IBM. but that's, sorry. We just, no. it's, that's on our podcast about top <laughs> ways of B2B marketing budget yep. is on that. And it's not that Zoom info can't drive some value. It's that clients don't derive value because they don't know how to use that. So absolutely. Okay. I guess we're going to have to promise we will do an episode on account-based marketing and the how-tos. So stay tuned for that. So in the meantime, if you have specific questions, DM us on our social media accounts or drop them in the comments so that we can actually build an episode that you're going to freak out over. So total side note. Okay. Anything else on ABM that was, I'm still We'll, ha we'll have to save one. it. We'll, we'll talk for 30 minutes just on that. So let's go to the next big, big topic that everyone has to talk about right now. And that is of course, AI. Yeah. Okay. Did you pull a statistic about I how did, many but let's go with yours it? first. I think uh, you had one around the percentage of marketers that are currently using AI. 94% of marketers have been using AI and most of them claim to have been using it for three years. Now we have been using it a little bit longer than that actually. Um, so I guess I probably believe that I would say marketers, especially marketers that are younger generations, you know, are early adopters when it comes to technology because you simply have to be, but 94% are using AI period. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's here. It's not a trend. It's just the here and now. And it's built into all the tools. So if you're using any tools, you may not know to call it AI or machine learning, but it's in there. If you're using any of Google's products, guess what? You're using AI. And you have been for a while. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And the other statistic around that is that 47% of marketers say they're going to increase their use of AI in 2024. Not surprising. It's been doing a lot of good for a lot of marketers, and they're just starting to figure out that that needs to be a key area of focus for the coming year. Totally agree. You know, I think it's so interesting because everybody has to find the time to investigate these tools. And what everybody's betting on is that if I carve out the time now, it'll make me more efficient later. And I, I would agree, you know, depending on how it's applied and if it's still effective. So it's interesting that so many people are like, okay, it's not just the cool thing. People have a personal reason to decide to invest their time in learning these. And we're constantly trying new ones out because change or die, right? You know, I mean, there's really no reason to cry in our cereal that AI is here. So we're constantly vetting tools and making sure like, oh, is, this, is it time to adopt this? Will it actually drive value? Will it actually accomplish goals? Will it drive more ROI because we're more efficient? Etc. Etc. So, yeah, not surprised at all. Do you think people are still scared of it? I don't think marketers are scared of AI, at least at a strategic level. They're realizing it just elevates them into a better decision-making role. Yeah. And it, it's like having someone to delegate to. I think the only people who are afraid of it are people who are in very tactical doer roles, mm. you know, copywriters and Being scared content writers yeah. and, and graphic designers are somewhat concerned about it. And the smart ones are using it to create their own little digital team that's doing more of their work for yeah. them. So if you're doing excellent work and you have the ability to be that human in the loop review and the one who's deciding what to pursue and what's going to deliver value in marketing, AI is not something to be afraid of even if it means that you shift 
the kind of marketing that you have been doing and what you spend your day-to-day hours on. It's just helping you make the best and the highest and best use of your time. Yeah. Absolutely. And we did a whole episode, you guys, on this. And so if you're looking for a deeper dive on it, go check out that episode for sure, because talent can't be replaced. AI cannot just completely wipe out the human. So we give a lot of tips and tricks on that one. One final note too, if you're in a leadership role and you're listening to this, ask your team questions about AI. Don't just go, how are you going to use AI, you know, or don't just push it at people say, what are your ideas? Are you experimenting? You know, how could, how could, or how should we be incorporating this? Like that collaborative approach. It's amazing what people will bring to the table. You don't really need to force this. You simply just need to open the conversation and help them know that you're there to provide resources for them to learn. Okay. Do you have another group of things? I've got one over here, but I'd like to, I'd like to have you go back to the sales conversation. I like kind of going back with the marketing and the sales together because you know what we do marketing and sales alignment all the time. What's impacting sales is impacting us as well. Absolutely. Okay. So 72% of salespeople who use social media outperform their peers. 72%. Now I know I pulled this one just for you, just so you know, because you're such a huge advocate of social selling and that alignment with marketing. But one little caveat is that statistic is down, but just a little. It's down 5% from 10 years ago. So it was closer to 80%, so about 78, almost 79% of salespeople would outperform their peers. So that is going down. I'm assuming it's because of the chatbots or you know, some of the auto bots on LinkedIn and, you know, that type of thing in social media. But that's just my guess is that some people, um, there's a, there's a a slight reduction in effectiveness because of how the tools have changed the platforms. It really is. Social selling is social selling. Spamming people is spamming people. (laughs) Don't spam people on social and call it social selling. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think people think, oh, well, social selling just means sending private direct messages about your product and trying to book a call. No, that is a tiny part of it that when appropriate, when you have earned the right to send that message, it's fine. But social selling also includes commenting on people's message, being a thought leader, sharing ideas, and showing up with frequency and high-value content that progresses people towards their goals and resolving their pain. It's social media being social. And it's interesting because the salespeople should be excited about this. I mean, social selling is relationship building. It's not sell, 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 sell. It's serve, don't sell. So that when people have a need, they already trust you because you did that. It is. And remember, even if using social media to be a a better salesperson is only helping you be better than 70% of your competitors, you know what? It's worth it. Yes. And I have like one final little statistic tucked away just for any skeptics out there on that. 75% of business-to-business buyers use social media to make purchasing decisions. So many people say, oh, social media, I mean, it doesn't work for B2B or I don't get it or it's so hard to attribute to sales. True, it's possible, but it is difficult. But 
the statistics point that out, that B2B decision makers are going to the social media well in order to inform their decisions. So you can't keep discounting this, not on the sales side and not on the marketing side. I'd like to bring up another statistic that we can talk about whether we believe it or not, but apparently 38% of B2B organizations, as surveyed in a particular survey, said that marketing is their top source of lead generation. Hmm. Is that a little gift yes, for no, me? I mean, so. yes. Okay, I am. I don't know whether to be surprised that the data was so positive towards that. I mean, thirty-eight percent. I don't know, like people, but I mean, that's really significant change of saying marketing really is driving that volume of success for us. And we see that, right? It's not about firing salespeople. It's about optimizing their performance and making sure that you do take those high ROI tasks and automate them um, in order to drive more sales. So exciting. It is. I think that organizations are starting to recognize what marketing can do. And I think that, you know, that 50% spent on digital marketing rather than just in-person sales efforts that you're calling marketing and putting under the marketing bucket. I think that's driving uh, the idea that, yes, marketing should be generating leads, high quality leads for your organization. And there is, it is easier to do attribution than it was in the past. So people are actually able to see, oh, this is making a difference when we consistently add more SEO content to our website, add optimized video to our website, run automated email campaigns and continually track optimize, A-B tests. There actually is a lot more data that people can look at and say, we know what's working, we know why it's working, and we know we want to do more of it. Absolutely. And I think people miss this point that that's the goal. Like that is the goal that marketing is responsible for high quality lead generation because it is difficult to scale sales human beings. They can quit. They have to be onboarded. They have to ramp up performance. They have to learn. But once you have a marketing system in place, you can learn from the data. The humans behind it can continue to optimize the system that then allows sales to close the deal and serve humans well. And people keep thinking, oh, well, maybe it'll work this year. And then we're going to have to hop over and test something else. And we're going to try something else. Like, no, (laughs) no, you should find the things that work, optimize, continue to test and add and iterate, call, add, cut different things. But you're supposed to be building a system where yes, marketing is your number one high quality lead generation. And I'm surprised that people are not asking for that more frequently. So this is a question that I would ask to B2B CEOs. What would change about your organization if you did have 38% of your leads coming from marketing? What if it was 50%? What if 80% of your leads were coming from marketing and your sales team could focus on closing deals to bring in the revenue? Absolutely. Mic drop. I have nothing to add to that. Okay. Um, I have one final one on my list. Definitely not final in the blog, but final for (laughs) at least as part of the conversation. We talked about AI. And so I want to go to an old school tactic that everybody hates, but it's still something that we cannot ignore. And that's email. So 70% of people 
can tell an email is spam just from a quick one to two second scan of the subject line. Yes, they can. They know when they're spam being spammed. And here's the way that people know if an email is spam. The subject line is something that doesn't matter to them right now. It doesn't matter how much value you're offering. It doesn't matter how amazing you are. It doesn't matter how clever your headline is. If that recipient doesn't care about what's in it because you haven't tapped into the things that get past their internal filter, you're going to be marked as spam. Yes. It's why we get so frustrated with Zoom info and other list providing services because cold email is interruptive. It's being pushed into its own folders and it's not necessarily relevant to what they care about right now. So I love that definition of spam, but it's the same thing. Even if they know you and you're sending something they don't care about, it's spam. But the other thing about this though is email still works. And you and I have brought this up on numerous, numerous podcasts because if you're driving value, people will read your email. They will click through. They will be curious if you're delivering something. And so as an example, $36 of revenue is generated for every single dollar of email spent. That's a pretty darn good return on investment as long as you're doing email strategically. And I will say one of the reasons the ROI is that high is because unless you're buying cold email lists, which you should not be doing, email is virtually free. You have your contact database that's agreed to receive marketing emails from you, I'm assuming, if you're doing this right. So it's really about if you really know the target market and you know what matters to them right now, you need to craft the content, you need to put it in the system, you need to get it automated, you need to test it and send it out. But it's not a massive spend like pay-per-click or doing a trade show. It's the lowest hanging fruit within your marketing tech stack and the easiest way that you can get in front of your customers and your prospects consistently delivering value. And it should be a lead generating source, period. The fact that this rarely comes up, like people, people think, oh, email nurture, strip campaign, like they understand that. It's nurturing them to turn into a sales qualified lead. Like I always find it interesting that there's very little accountability for is that producing sales qualified leads because that tells you so much about your messaging, so much about whether or not you know your market. And one other little side note, people need to start ignoring their unsubscribe list. Unsubscribes are healthy. They are teaching you something. And if your unsubscribes are high, okay, then you are screwing something up. But you know, if just one or two people here and there are dropping out and you've mm -hmm. got a healthy email list size, let them go. That's okay. Like you didn't need them to make or break the success of your company. So, you know, healthy email lists from people that want to hear from you. Awesome. Like that is a win-win for both you and for them. So I love it. Any final ones on your side? I had one more. Okay. And this was another surprising one. 78% of B2B companies say influencer marketing is effective for them. Now, number one. Really? 78% of B2B companies are not doing influencer marketing. Thank you. No, <laughs> no way. And second, nobody knows what influencer marketing means in B2B. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
You don't get a celebrity to endorse your product and do a pretty unboxing and tell you how obsessed they are with Although it. Although if anybody wants to hire a B2B influencer, we are totally down with doing she, unboxings. Yeah, Daisy would be good at that. <laughs> Just Daisy. But I think there's a, a good point to be made here that B2B is missing the boat on what influencer marketing could be. Oh. Because your influencers in the B2B space are not on TikTok. Mm-hmm. They are within professional organizations. They are thought leaders in their field. They're the ones who are doing keynotes at major events that you attend. They are people who could be on your board of advisors. Yes. They are people that you could bring in as stakeholders within your organization. There's so many different ways that you can use influencer marketing in B2B, but you have to think outside of the box. I agree. And, you know, it does make me wonder with that statistic, if if it's a semantic thing, right? So co-promotion or affiliate marketing programs or... Um, just so many different things, you know, if, if, if people are saying, oh, because I appeared on a podcast or had somebody on my podcast, if they're including that. So that just, that statistic is, I still don't believe it. Even if you include all that, I just, (laughs) even even with that also, oh, we should do a whole podcast on what co-promotion should look like. Yeah. Oh, so many, so many clients come to me and they're like, we just did this amazing thing. It's like, you should have brought me in earlier on this conversation because you put in, what, four weeks of work on this and how many thousands of dollars and there was no follow-up, no accountability. You don't have insight into, you know, what the metrics were that were being tracked, nothing to, nothing to show for it at the end of the day. Yep. You know, I do like this direction. I do hope that B2B does adopt influencer marketing more succinctly and clarifies their definition of what this could look like. Because in order to do it well, you know, finding the people that your values aligned with and who have a point of view that is complementary to what you're selling and vice versa, where there is a halo effect for them partnering with a corporation. There's so many good things. Like there's just so many intentional, like thoughtfulness about building those kind of conversations and then showing up as a thought leader or alongside of other thought leaders because you have to drive value. I mean, influencers got the following that they did as long as they didn't buy their lists. That's a thing or buy their followers, but they got their following because they are follow worthy because they say something that actually helps people. And so when you do find somebody or a group of somebody's where it makes sense to have them in your ecosystem. I really love the direction because it's not flippant. It's not something you can just turn on and off. I mean, you really do have to have a strategy behind it. And man, those relationships and navigating those relationships of what they get for that, little messy. I have a little experience on the B2B side, very complicated and very messy. So I, I think that's going to be interesting. And I'm, I'm interested to see like where that goes in the future. Well, so we've covered some general statistics that should surprise no one. Hopefully a few that surprise, shock, and horrify a few people who realize, oh, I might be behind the boat. And then a few that we just don't buy it. Yeah, agreed. So you guys, again, 
dozens and dozens of statistics on this blog. So I think you're going to have a lot of fun with that, but we don't just leave data out there for data's sake. We do have some actionable takeaways and we love to hear your arguments. So drop your favorite comments, statistics, or arguments to what we're saying. And let's start a really good conversation about sane marketing in 2024. Thanks so much. Hit that subscribe button and we'll see you next week onward and upward. We hope you learned something today that will help you succeed with your marketing. And if you liked what you heard, definitely give us a thumbs up and a subscribe. Don't forget to check the show notes. We're sharing free tools and resources there. And you guys, we would love to hear your comments. So drop one in or send us an email and maybe we'll use your topic on a future show.